Welcome to The Fairer Sense. With me, Tanya. And me, Kara. Women, money, and the fight to break even. Because we give a shit. And you should too. Today, breaking into the boys club. Hey, Tanya. Hey, Kara. Today, we are mixing things up a little bit. Yeah, we're doing something for the very first time. I feel like there should be a drum roll or something. <laughs> we need like a sound effect, like new thing. Boop, boop, boop. Yeah, right? <laughs> Today, we are bringing you the first part of a two-part episode. We have so much to say on this topic, and we heard from so many interesting guests that we decided it really warranted two separate episodes. And the subject we're talking about is women in, quote unquote, men's professions, what you could think of as fields that have historically been dominated by men and are still, by and large, dominated by them. Yeah, it's so funny. I kind of sat with the title of today's episode because I thought, you know, is this just leaning into the fact that men are dominating it. You know, these aren't men's jobs. I hate when people are like, they're taking my job. Buddy, it was never yours to begin with, okay? Um, (laughs) But really when you look at the statistics and when you think about socially how we think of certain roles in our society, the image of a man comes to mind. And that is a barrier that women are having to fight against. Yeah, for sure. And there's one really good topical piece of news that I think ties in to this. The state of California, my state, many accuse it of being a nanny state. And on some things, I do think they regulate the hell out of stuff. But it's usually with good intentions. And one thing that the state legislature is considering is a bill that would force every company that is based in California and has a board of directors, so corporations, to include at least one woman on their board of directors. And it would also require there to be two directors who are women if the board has five or more, and at least three of them have to be women if there are six or more directors. So it's a good thing, I, I think, that they're taking the step of requiring close to 50-50 parity, because if you only have one woman on a board, you're just highly likely to get some token effect going on. Yeah, this is one of those laws that... I feel its heart is in the right place. And of course, I want to see more women in all sorts of positions of power, specifically on boards of directors, but also as CEOs and et cetera, et cetera, ideally president, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> it gives me pause because specifically of the token effect. You know, if you just, if people just slap a woman into the role and they are not taking time to find someone who is well suited to the role or, I just feel like it could blow up in our faces a little bit. I'm wary. And I haven't read the article. I haven't read the language of this law specifically, but I'm a little nervous about it, even though on its face, it's something I support a lot. Yeah. And the fact that they they do write in that larger boards have to have more than one woman, I think is really, really positive because right now the percent of women on corporate boards is 16%. It's a tiny, tiny fraction. And we know, we 
our past guest, uh, Kristen Rowe Finkbiner, talked about how companies are more profitable when women are in leadership roles. And this is absolutely one of those moments. But I, I think we also know that employers are happier. They have more family-friendly policies when women are in charge. And so inviting them into that is important. But when you get a single woman on a board or a single person of color, then for sure the token effect kicks in. And, and just to give folks a sense of the research out there, one of the things that research has found is that individuals who are a token in a group have their problem-solving skills impaired and have less memory for group interaction when they're the single whatever it is, the numerical token. And the way that researchers sum this up is they are so worried about how they are being evaluated and how well they are performing relative to others that they fail to perform. And so instead, they focus on how well they're doing, how well everyone else is doing, and then really can't actually participate. Obviously, that's not every person in every interaction, but when you can actually see a demonstrable, uh, statistically significant effect from putting people in as the token whatever, that's a problem. We can't create a system in which there's more of that, though I do totally think getting more women on more boards is only a good thing. You know, personal story time. I recently <laughs> went to. <laughs> we need another sound effect for that. Like, personal story time. I recently went to a friend's wedding, and a mutual friend of ours is Indian. She's born in India and moved to the States and became a citizen. And she was the only person of color at this 200 person wedding. And she kept remarking on it. She kept saying, you know, I feel kind of uncomfortable. I feel kind of weird. Like it clearly was something that was running around in her head over and over and over again. And of course, when you're someplace and there are 199 people around you and not a single one of them looks like you, you're going to notice that and you're going to carry that around. Similarly, if it, if you don't see anyone who is the same gender as you or non-gender conforming <laughs> as you, it's something that it's an added weight is how I think of it. And it's also, I think, an added product of this becomes you speak for all, insert your identity mm -hmm. here. If you're the only woman in a room, it's, well, you speak for all women. If you're the only person of color, well, you speak for all people of color, which is absolutely bonkers. And another added burden, you know, we strive here on the podcast to not ask our guests to do that. And I feel like not enough people do that, quite frankly, because we can't speak for all women. And we've gotten some emails from women who tell us that we don't speak for them. So I know that's true, <laughs> which I love. I mean, you're more than welcome to disagree with us and to see the world differently than we do. And the same for whatever identifying factors you have, again, whether that's race or sexuality or whatever, certainly not one queer person is going to speak for all queer people on all topics Throughout the end of time, that's totally bonkers. It is. Although, as you're saying all that, I was thinking about how I've tended to react when I am the only woman in a room or in a discussion. And I totally start doing that. I feel like I have to represent all women and I have to get all of you know everyone's interests out there, start talking about parental leave and things like that when like I'm not a parent and I'm not going to be. And it's a funny thing to just observe that compulsion. And I do think then that distracts from performance because then I'm trying to like speak for all women instead of actually like doing the thing we're there to do or making my biggest contribution in an objective sense. And so, yeah, like I, I think that's a complicated 
question of where does that urge to speak for all people come from? Is that like the person who is the token or is it from the people who are there saying like, okay, we expect you, you're like, you're the black person, like, tell us what that experience is like, (laughs) you know, like, anyway, in either case, it's not a good thing. The reason that we're talking about this example with California and corporate boards is it's just a really good illustration of some of the complications involved when you're talking about any group who is the minority numerically in a setting and particularly in guilds like tech and STEM and the outdoors industry, for example, you really still have a world in which the vast majority of certainly leaders, if not down the line employees are men and in which women are sort of facing some of the workplace biases that we've talked a lot about here before, but also might be feeling some of that token effect or might be having to modify their behavior in ways that are not productive for them just to sort of like manage it all. And so we're really excited today to share two interviews with you that are an American perspective. And then next week on part two of this theme, Kara is going to share two interviews that are from an international perspective. Yeah. And can I just say, <laughs> which I feel like is the the opening to every argument ever, but something that I think about all the time is the Ruth Bader Ginsburg quote where she says, people ask me all the time, when will there be enough women on the Supreme Court? And my answer is when there are nine. And she follows it up by saying, No one ever bats an eye when it's nine men on the court. But when I say nine women should be on the court, people are shocked. And the idea of a token of, oh, we just need one person of color. We just need one disabled person. We just need one woman says that the status quo is all men or all white people or all able-bodied people. And then when you have something like, well, we have an all-female board. It's radical, but it's actually not that radical. In fact, it's not radical at all. And I wish that we were able to flip our mindsets more to move away from, well, just because straight white male has been the default, it needs to stay to the default. No, there are a million other stories, there are a million other perspectives that we can be getting and we should be getting because as studies show, and I'm in my own personal experiences, and I imagine many others, diversity on every level makes things better. <laughs> I mean, I just feel like that's the, the thesis statement. And people are like, oh, oh my gosh, let me grab my pearls. Yeah. Yeah, totally. It's like, it goes back to the Ali Wong joke of like, the only men who wouldn't want more women or more people of color in their businesses and corporations are men who don't like more money. <laughs> Stop being threatened. Take the money. <laughs> Take the money. I talked to Felicity of the blog Fetching Financial Freedom, and that is not, in fact, her real name. That's her blogger pen name. She and I had a longer chat, and this is just a short excerpt of it that's really focused on what her experience has been like being a woman in software engineering. And in one of my current projects, there are way more mics than there are women. There is a lot of male energy. I feel like at the same time, a lot of it's older male energy. So it can be difficult sometimes to be heard and to um, kind of navigate it. And I find like you can't quite do the same way that, you know, a young upstart guy would do it. I kind of have to modulate how I 
act so I don't come off as bitchy or something like that or um, shrill or, or what have you, whatever the sexist term of the day is. <laughs> what does that look like in terms of how you're actually modifying what you do? So much of me like trying to get things done is often asking questions and being like, oh, so why are you doing it this way? Oh, have you thought about X, Y, and Z? As opposed to being like, you know, why aren't you doing that this way that's obviously superior? Uh, which, I mean, is, I think, a good way to go about things in general so you're not assuming things. But I feel like especially as a woman in engineering and a woman in, in you know, male-dominated fields, I think in general, it's helped me a lot. I would hope that in an ideal world I wouldn't have to. Uh, do that sort of thing, but it's what I'm currently doing and it's working well for me. The age thing I'm curious about, you mentioned working with quite a few older guys, and is there something you do differently with them than you would do with guys your own age? I don't think too much particularly. Well, I mean, sometimes there's awkward comments. The sort of off-color where it's like a little cringy or maybe like a nervous chuckle, but not the sort of like call HR type of comment, so kind of the the weird, I don't know what I'm doing right now, <laughs> and I feel like I don't have to do that, I don't see that as much in the, the younger men that I work with, so I think that's the only thing. Do you think that's because they're more aware, or what, why do you think that is? I think they're definitely more aware, because in many cases, the older men that I work with haven't had to deal a lot with women. I mean, they have had some here and there, but the younger men, you know, women are becoming more and more in engineering, and it's definitely more of something that they have to work with. It's striking to me that you, in particular, would have to tweak your behavior or kind of try to manage the emotions of the men that you work with, because you are so badass, and so... (laughs) like self-evidently awesome. So having to tone that down and making them feel like it was their idea they thought of instead of your idea is crazy to me. There was this one case where it was like my first real like meeting where I was presenting work that I had done. And it was a a small case. I wasn't giving a presentation, but it was me and I was working with this younger man on my team as well who was sort of my mentor, which was weird because he had only been at the job for a year, but... Regardless, I was talking to this woman on the project, and as I was talking and explaining the work and looking um, and going through the, the notes I had taken, she kept like looking at him and asking him questions, mm-hmm. even though I was the one presenting all the work I had done. So it's definitely weird sometimes. Most of the time, it's not a big deal, and I don't see that, but there are definitely situations where it's like, why, why? <laughs> Here at The Fairer Sense, we get real about money. So how real would it be if we then shoved a sponsor message on you trying to sell you something you don't need? Not very. So we won't do that. But we will tell you about services we love that save you money on things you already use. That's why we are super stoked that season two of The Fairer Sense is sponsored by Autoslash, the number one site for getting a great deal on a car rental. Because you gotta rent a car sometimes, right? Autoslash is completely free to use, and on average, renters save 30% or more using it. Autoslash searches all the major rental companies like Hertz, Avis, and Thrifty, so you won't end up in some sketchy no-name rental lot, wondering what you've gotten yourself into. They do the legwork for you of seeking out the best discounts and coupon codes, so you save money and time. And they don't stop looking for deals when you book. Up until the day you pick up the car, Autoslash keeps searching for discounts and will email you if they find a lower rate. 
It's like price protection on your rental and one less thing you have to think about. Why can't all travel be like that, right? Use Autoslash to book your next rental car at autoslash.com. When we talk about women in boys clubs, certainly tech comes right to mind, but another industry that is a full-on boys club is the outdoors industry. So I talked to Danielle Reese, who along with Jen Gorecki is a co-founder of Coalition Snow, which is a women's ski and snowboard company. The standard, the way heritage brands, the long-standing ski and snowboard companies, they design a ski or snowboard specific to a man, and then they somehow dumb it down so that it's appropriate for women to use. So they shrink it and pink it. They make it shorter. They make it softer. They put a bunch of passive pink graphics on it. And when I was eight, I loved the colored pink. I was inspired by flowers and daisies and Minnie Mouse. But most of the women I know at the top of a steep line want something that inspires them and that they can have confidence in. So we design high-performance, high-quality skis and snowboards. When people ask me about Coalition Snow and how we're different from other ski and snowboard companies. The first I want to say is that being the only company that's designing skis and snowboards by women for women, what we did differently was that we actually asked women what they wanted in a product. We listened to it and then we designed a product for them and then we had women test it and then that's what we put on the market. So when you look at what's out there now, even if you have um, you know a much larger heritage brand where they may have some women involved in the design process, process, it's not the same thing. It's like not starting with that. In some level, it's taking what was designed for the standard skier, which happens to be a male skier and most likely an athletic white male skier, and then somehow modified and changed for women. So it's a radically different change on it. And may I just say on behalf of all women, skiers and snowboarders, thank you. (laughs) I'm so glad you guys are doing what you're doing. I think most of the skis that I've used that have been called women's models, they just basically like take the metal out. And then it's just like same specs, but wood, softer, which sometimes is a problem if it's like big and wide, but doesn't actually have the ability to like cut when you turn. Then, yeah, it's like, as you said, kind of like gear that sucks. And if I can just add from like a feminist perspective, like what this means and like what you do is that. Many women, when they're at the top of a steep line, let me just say for floating endless pow, like maybe not having any metal and those like deep pow is amazing, right? But at the top of most of those bottomless pow runs is normally a windblown, scary as all crap, scary, icy conditions, or it's a tight turn in a chute or something to get in there. And if you don't have gear that you can trust to hold an edge that you won't eat it at the very top and fall to your untimely death, it's so important. And so having something that you can trust As a woman, I believe that most women attribute when they can't do something or they have the fear that they don't have the skills and confidence in themselves. And the reality is is they're just on gear that sucks. So get them on a quality equipment. Even if they're a beginner and intermediate, if it's appropriate for what they're doing, then they will increase their confidence and have so much more fun. Most men, like my husband would be on a pair of skis and he's like, these skis are crap. He's like, let's get something else. You know, like it's like blaming the gear. And like most women I know are like, oh my God, I'm just, I'm just not a good skier. Like I can't do it. I just, you know, it's me. I can't. And it's like, no, no, you're just not on the right equipment for what it is that you're doing. 
For those who aren't familiar, the outdoor industry is just completely male-dominated like through all of history. If you read something like Outside Magazine, they'll do quizzes or fitness tests that don't even have like a way to calibrate for women. They'll say like, if you can't do 50 push-ups, you're in terrible shape when it's like, come on. <laughs> like I know plenty of badass women who are in incredible shape but maybe can't do 50 push-ups. That's one example. But you said all the gear is designed by men and then they shrink it and pink it for women or just make it like a little flimsier or maybe you don't change anything but just like put hearts on it. I'm sure that you guys faced obstacles that I can't even imagine when you were trying to start a company, like all the way from getting funding to convincing people to carry your products. I'm sure there's much, much more, but can you just talk a little bit about what those early days were like? Let me just tell you how this happened. So Jen was backcountry skiing and over a bottle of whiskey was discussing with women, why is it that women's gear sucks? As many great ideas are hatched over a bottle of whiskey, she said, I think I, I think I want to start a ski and snowboard company, you know? Like, I think someone kind of said, you know what the industry needs? The industry needs an outsider like you, Jen. <laughs> and so when Jen got back, um, knowing that I'd worked as a ski and snowboard instructor, she asked me what I thought. And I was like, yeah, I think this is a great idea. Like, let's do this. And so I um, started asking women, you know, what they thought about their gear, what they didn't like about their gear, and figuring out what it was that we could do in the industry. And so it never really occurred to us to think that we couldn't do it. And so once we started the company and like, I mean, you don't have to know everything about everything to make something happen. I mean, I think that's like when people talk about the imposter syndrome, people feel like they have to have all the answers and that's just simply not true. You know, if you have a great, brilliant idea, just start and move forward and like, you'll figure it out. You know, you find the right people and if the world needs what it is that you're asking for, like you'll figure out many of the things you need to do and who to talk to and who to work with, who is the expert in that area. So I just want to plant that out there. So the first year was tough, getting women's interest and getting their feedback and designing. I mean, a lot of people think if you own a hard goods manufacturing company that the hardest part is figuring out the design and like the manufacturing. And that's just not true. The hardest part is entering into a really competitive, well-established industry with almost no money. So getting your name out there on a shoestring budget um, is really difficult when you're going up against like a big giants. Most of the heritage brands are like owned by companies that own Rubbermaid and a handful of other huge, huge companies that intersect across all industries. So you're not just competing against, you know, someone with a hundred million dollar marketing budget. You know, it's like mm -hmm. mind blowing. And yet there's tons of companies that are doing this. So one of the toughest things I think was being taken seriously as entrepreneurs in this scene. The number of times that someone came up to Jen or myself and said, oh, good luck with your project. Like it's a side project. Like we're, I don't know, wealthy women who instead of, you know, working for a charity are doing this, that we weren't taken seriously, that this is like a business. And I think once you have a cap table and you have investors and you're like talking to overseas manufacturers and you're at trade shows and you have purchase orders from REI and Amazon and Mac, like I think it's time that people should start taking women seriously as business leaders. So did the not taking you seriously happen even after those things, after you had the manufacturing contracts and you had orders? Absolutely. Yeah, it still happens. What are kind of the common things that you hear? Is it just like, oh, you must be like wealthy women who need a hobby and you don't feel like indulgent, like doing the keto diet or something? Or is it? No, I mean, I wish. I mean, no one's ever accused us of being wealthy women. <laughs> <laughs> And I think that some people who've known the successes we've had in the nonprofit sector maybe thought that 
because we have a purpose and that the messages around having strong, independent women who have choices, that the messaging maybe overlaps with what we've done in the nonprofit sector where we've worked for nonprofits in the outdoor industry and also ones that are with women, you know? So I think that there might've been some confusion there, but I think a lot of it is really just gender bias and just um, not treating female entrepreneurs seriously. I mean, it's certainly not something that's unique to the outdoor industry, but I do think in a lot of things that people see, there is a heavy dose of tokenism in outdoor world. You know, like almost every ski movie that you see now has like the token chick. Maybe they have two if they're super progressive, but it was like a revolutionary act to have, you know, the all women ski movie. For folks who are not familiar, these are literally just movies. We sometimes call them ski porn that are just like people skiing rad lines. (laughs) Like maybe saying some things they think are profound that sound really boneheaded. (laughs) It's really all about the big ski lines. And it's like a really big deal that there's actually a ski movie coming out this winter that is half women and half men. And it's like... I think in the the feed about it is just kind of mind blowing that some men are like, why do they have to dumb it down and put women in it? And um, just the responses that some of the male athletes had, like, it's just, it's pretty, uh, pretty entertaining. So. It's, it's so mind-boggling to me that in this age of so much media saturation where you really can see whatever you want, that people would still carry that kind of athletic bias. Because sure, like maybe women wouldn't be amazing at getting to be 300 pounds and be linebackers in NFL football. But you look at what women do in gymnastics. They do more impressive things than the guys do at a much, much younger age. You look at something like soccer, where like in the U.S., like the men's team didn't even qualify for the World Cup and the U.S. women's team generally wins the World Cup. And there are so many cases where, especially in this country, women are totally equal, if not better. But yet that doesn't seem to stick in a lot of people's minds. And and we think, like you said, that including women somehow dumbs something down. Almost every single time that I tell someone that I co-founded a women-owned ski and snowboard company, the very next question is, oh, so you make jackets and pants and apparel and 98 percent of the time, these questions are coming from other women. And so even though we don't hand press the skis and snowboards ourselves that we have manufacturers, I have now moved to saying we design and manufacture skis and snowboards because somehow saying that we're a ski and snowboard company seems to be confusing to people. And it strikes me that you guys saw this problem and you didn't go like, hey, we should go like right to Solomon or right to K2 or right to smaller ski companies. You didn't think like, oh, we should go to some of them and see if they would do this the right way. You guys said like, no, we're going to start our own thing. You know, Jen and I are in our 40s now, and we just got fucking tired of waiting for someone else to do this shit. You know, it's like we just decided we're the ones that we're waiting for. And we're also not ones to be told what we can and can't do. One of the things that is really different between the two interviews, Felicity and Danielle, is that Felicity is sort of taking like my approach in a way uh, when we did the episode about things we disagree on of working within the system, a system which is still predominantly male. And Danielle and her co-founder, Jen, took more of your approach, Kara, and were like, why would we try to change the ski industry from within? Let's burn it all down and do our own thing. We don't need the guys at all. So they've got an incredible company that's all women employees creating products for women. You know, like it's just awesome goals. Yeah, I think it's great to have both points of view, actually. And like I said in that episode where we disagree with each other, um, 
you know, ultimately we all have the same goal. Danielle, Felicity, you and I, we all want the same thing. We're just going about it in different ways. But we're all on that wave together, which is great. Totally. We need all of us working it from all the angles. I think we can't just go outside the system. And likewise, we can't just work within the system. So kudos to women doing it either one of these ways, either working within uh, male-dominated fields or kind of going outside and creating your own thing. Yeah, totally. Though listening to Felicity, one of the things that occurred to me while we were chatting was this idea, like she, because she works in a very male-dominated field, she can't totally just come right out and say what she wants or take credit for her ideas. She kind of has to do what I almost think of as like inception. She has to present her ideas in a way that allows her male coworkers to then latch onto them, but as though they came up with it themselves. She's having to really manage in a different way and not able to take full credit for her work, which I think is like, oh God, it just makes me sad, especially because I know how awesome she is. Yeah. Honestly, listening to her talk about that made me sad and also made me so angry because what she was describing is an aspect of emotional labor. Having to come up with an idea and then say, oh, I need to figure out how I can present this to my coworkers, to my boss, to the men around me so that I don't seem like a threat or a danger in any way. And they think it's a good idea slash their own idea. I mean, that's so much work to not only come up with the idea, but then have to go through this like ninja warrior loop <laughs> like mm-hmm. to figure out how to just get her idea across in a way that she will actually be heard. And that is not labor that men in general have to do, specifically in a professional setting. And it drives me up a wall that so many women have to do that in so many areas of their lives. But particularly it feels Like in romantic relationships, there's always going to be some miscommunication, right? I mean, it's two people trying to live their lives together. There's going to be fights. There's going to be whatever. But in a professional context, ideally, you respect someone for their abilities. They respect you for your abilities. And you're working together using each other's abilities to create the best product or idea or whatever. And that's not what's happening so often. And Again, it's just falling on women's shoulders predominantly to do this emotional labor. And it it just breaks my heart. It really does. I agree. I think that it's certainly not an experience that's unique to women who work in male-dominated fields or tech-heavy fields. But I do suspect strongly that women in those fields have to do it more than in other fields. You know, like I was in communications and was always surrounded by a lot of women, had clients who were women. And so that's not to say I didn't have to do other kinds of emotional labor, because I think that that's also just part of client work, though I do think that women tend to process that differently uh, than men do, uh, you know, by and large, obviously always exceptions. It's not the same thing. Like I, I could take credit for my ideas. I could, if a guy like repeated the exact same thing I'd said, I could say something like, oh, so you agree, you know, like I didn't have to act like they had come up with the idea. And I think that that's a big and important difference between male dominated fields and not, you know, just sort of like fields that have more parity or that are even women dominated. Oh, my God. Quick side note. T-Bone, noted feminist, came on the podcast and said so. Did that to me the other day. I said something and like four seconds later, he repeated it as though it was his idea. And I was like, cut the shit. Like, that was my idea. You just stole that from me. And you could see his face immediately churn into, no, I didn't. And then the recognition of, oh my God, I totally did. (laughs) 
<laughs> and so I just wanted to share that because I love talking about T-bone, but <laughs> um, it's so hard to pick the thing that makes me the angriest, but <laughs> not being able to take credit for the things that you came up with has got to be one of the most heartbreaking and enraging things in the world. So I'm so glad that you were able to do that in large part. I'm so glad that I am able to do that in my own relationship and in my professional life. And my wish is for other women to be able to do that. And other, I want to make space too for other, other types of people. It's not just women. It's whether you're any kind of oppressed group. Anyone who's marginalized. I think too, one of the things that really struck me about the two interviews was when Danielle was talking about the ski industry and how men and women tend to interpret similar things differently. Like the idea that a woman standing on the top of a mountain that's icy will feel a bit wobbly. And and I have felt this many times. It's, it's totally true that when you're on like rock hard ice, that's been wind scoured and it's steep, you know, that's like a scary place to be, but that women will interpret that as I suck and men will interpret that same feeling as my gear sucks. I did ask Mark about that, by the way, and he said he would internalize it a bit more, <laughs> which I think speaks to the fact that Mark is like one of the good guys and doesn't totally blame external forces for every little thing. But, you know, the fact that Danielle and Jen through their company are actually serving what women want and need with skis and snowboards so that they don't have to blame themselves. They can just say like, OK, yeah, my gear's awesome and it's doing what I need to do and I'm able to go out and have the fun that I want. That to me is an important connection that I think companies that don't include a lot of women on their boards or on their staff or in their leadership, whatever it might be, they're missing out on. Like if you have mostly guys running the company, how likely is it that you have actually asked women, potential customers, what they want or what would serve them or asked people of color, people who are disabled, who might have uh, different challenges, you know, like what they would use and benefit from? I just think that question isn't asked very much. And as a result, you have, I mean, let's just be honest, like worse products. And (laughs) then that means that you have less appeal and then you have less money coming in because people aren't buying your crappy products or if they are, they're kind of hating them. They're not recommending them. It's not just about having women in parity in your staff for the sake of like, oh, this is nice for women's careers, but it's also about the quality of the end product that you produce and what that ultimately puts out there in the market for consumers. Right. Well, and we saw that firsthand, right, with the new iPhone face unlocking software. The software was Asian women in particular. Racist. The software was racist. (laughs) Yes. The software was hella racist because it was developed Mm -hmm. by... I mean, there are a ton of like Indian and, and, you know, like Asian engineers, but I think they maybe weren't the ones they were testing it on. Right. And so just to be clear, the the problem was that Asian women were able to unlock other people's phones with other Asian women's phones because the software wasn't registering enough differences in their faces. It was like, oh, yeah, here's like one Asian woman's face. It's all the same. Versus, you know, white people were not having that problem. And that's what happens. Over here shaking my hand. And that's just one example of what happens when you don't, when diversity doesn't start at the core of your product. And again, the term like diversity hire really bothers me because you shouldn't be hiring someone to, as we spoke to earlier, you know, be a token or to fit a quota. You should be hiring them because you're interested in a diversity of experiences, knowledge, and skills. And someone who 
looks differently from you, speaks differently from you, comes from a different class or racial background, whatever, is going to bring different thoughts and experiences to the table, therefore creating a stronger, better product. And it absolutely kills me when people will look at companies, panels, etc., and it's all people of a similar background. They're like, well, these are just the best of the best. No, that's your bias talking. And it's harming the product or the company that you are trying to build. And the the photo thing, like with the iPhone, the craziest thing about that, it, sometimes I think like diversity is necessary just to prevent idiocy. <laughs> like the iPhone thing with it thinking that all Asian women are interchangeable um, in terms of their private identity. That was not a new discovery. For years, it has been an issue that phones the camera on phones and also the settings and things like Facebook where they recognize a face that they have been far less likely to recognize faces of darker skinned people. So African-Americans in particular, their faces won't show up with that square on Facebook and only like the white faces will be identifiable or taggable. So that's been going on for years. That's a known thing. The fact that the Apple team didn't figure that out to me says there was not enough diversity of thinking on the team. And yeah, to your point, like that's less about how many colors of the rainbow you can represent and how many genders are in the room, but just like making sure that you have people who are thinking about things in different ways is ultimately always going to give you a better product. Yeah. I just also was going to say, you know, Coalition Snow has been around now for four years and which is fairly remarkable for a company of their size and a company that has such demanding physical product, it's not hard to be a blogger for four years, but they have high overhead costs. And I think the fact that they went outside the system, started their own company, women run, they got venture capital funding, they've been around for four years, that's success. And it seems like they're on the rise. They're only getting better, hopefully, bigger and better. I hope that sends an encouraging message to people who maybe are reluctant to invest in women-owned companies or reluctant to put a woman on their board be bold, be, get crazy, put two women on your board, you know, invest in that company because it works. People want it. They are creating a product. Coalition Snow is creating a product that is selling. And there's absolutely no reason that other female owned companies, that other minority owned companies can't do the same thing. Amen. As usual, I think we have raised, I mean, thought-provoking questions here. We've heard from some amazing women, and now we want to hear from you. So please shoot us an email and tell us your thoughts. Please, specifically, I would love to hear some of your favorite female-owned companies or ways that you support diversity in the workplace. And the email is fairsense at gmail.com. And of course, we are always on Twitter. I check Twitter a thousand times a day. It's an addiction. I hate myself. It's fine. And that that is at fairsense. And if you'd like to help support the show, something we'd be super grateful for, there are two main things you can do, especially if you listen on an iPhone and you have the Apple podcast app, if you could give us a star review. In the newer iOS version, it's really quick. You just scroll down and tap the stars. You don't have to write anything. If you have an older version, first of all, you should update your iOS because there are important safety patches. (laughs) 
<laughs> but in that one, it does sometimes require a more narrative review. But anyway, if you could do that, we'd be super grateful. And then also, if you feel inspired, please tell a friend about the show. That's really the way that these things catch fire anyway. So help us spread the movement. Let's take down the patriarchy or as Coalition Snow says, let's shred the patriarchy together. Yeah. Oh my God. I love their shred the patriarchy. That's so great. So yeah, get out there, shred the patriarchy. And of course, stay rad. Stay rad. The Fairer Sense are me, Tanya Hester, and the world's best co-host, Kara Perez. Our theme song is by The Insider, our ad music is by Kevin McLeod, and you can find out more info about the other artists you hear on the show at our website, thefairersense.com. You can always find me at ournextlife.com and Kara at bravelygo.co. 